Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. My name is Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, Sandman number 16, The Doll's House, part 7, the conclusion, Lost Hearts. Uh, cover date, May 1990. Art by Mike Drigenberg and Malcolm Jones III. Uh, colorist originally, Robbie Bush. Uh, xylenol for the Absolute and later uh, recolorized editions. Uh, lettering by Todd Klein again. Tom Payer as assistant editor and Karen Berger as editor. And this is uh, this wraps things up in a pretty big bow for us. Yeah, it sure does. Before we get into all of that, though, I do want to take us a minute here to let our listeners know about a brand new show on the network. Well, really, not brand new, because by new, what I mean is that uh, we've been releasing episodes for nine or ten months now, but we haven't bothered to tell anyone about it. Uh, this show is called ATAZ, as in A to Z. It's a, a solo show. It's just me. And what I'm doing on that show is discussing entire speculative fiction novels in single 20-minute episodes. So totally different from the way we do things here here, where we spend an hour or more on just 24 pages. And I've already done episodes on some pretty big names in speculative fiction, including Ursula K. Le Guin, Shirley Jackson, Kim Stanley Robinson, Isaac Asimov. There's more. I won't keep naming them, though. Uh, although I will say also that I've already done a volume of a comic book. This was the first volume of Powers by Brian Michael Bendis, which is actually a book that you gave me as a birthday present, Brent, something like 15 years ago or so. I had a <laughs> lot of fun revisiting that. That was one of the best birthday presents you've ever given me because I have kept up with that series. I've read all of it. Going back to the beginning was a, a lot of fun. But uh, at any rate, uh, I hope that you guys, the listeners, will check it out. And uh, if I remember, I'll even put a link in the show notes. But all right, with the announcement section over, let, let's get to this this big conclusion. Uh, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about as we go through this one. But really, I'm already looking ahead to the wrap-up episode that we'll do next month, really just thinking about the way that all of this works with the big picture. It's a pretty magnificent, really just amazing job that Gaiman has done in this in this issue. It really pulls a lot of the threads nicely together. Um, it makes it feel like a far more coherent collection um, for the doll's house. Um, and there's some really nice art that is done here by Mike Dringenberg and uh, Malcolm Jones III. And a lot of things which intentionally call back to images that we've seen going back to Preludes and Nocturnes, which is um, nice to see and kind of helps – further weave in these stories to the greater continuity. And there's a number of things that some threads or some plot line hooks that are set up that pay off much later as well in the uh, Sandman series. So uh, pay attention to this one readers. We won't for spoilers sake, call everything out, but uh, there's a lot of good little nuggets in here. And I really enjoyed revisiting and, and seeing some of the stuff being set up so early. Oh yeah. Me as well. I mean, this really had me very, very excited to continue with this series, maybe impatient even to continue with this series. But before we can even get to being impatient about when we're getting to the next volume, we should do our, uh, our scene by scene here, our, our kind of page by page, recap. So uh, this story picks up two or three minutes after the end of Into the Night with Dream and Rose Walker hanging out on top of a hoodoo. We saw this going on in Into the Night. Dream has just finished explaining to Rose all of the stuff that we, the readers, learned about Dream Vortices from Gilbert last time. And Rose here, upon hearing all of this, is a, a little incredulous. And she, she has a, a number of different reasons for refusing to believe what Dream is telling her. Uh, for one thing, Dream just saved her life in Collectors. So 
Why would he kill her now? And anyway, this is just a dream. Dreams aren't real, and she's going to wake up soon. But she won't, right? And Dream's demeanor eventually convinces her of this. And so she has just one question then. Why her? And Gaiman here wants us to keep turning the pages. And so he expertly takes us away from this scene before we get that answer. But I think, you know, we can cheat a little bit and recap this out of order. So we get a page with a black background where everything else has had a white background so far. And it's something of a flashback while Dream explains everything that he knows about Dream Fortices. And the, the deal is this. Dream doesn't know why, but once in every era, there is a Dream Vortex, which is uh, something that happens when... And a mortal briefly becomes the center of the dreaming. This vortex then destroys the barriers between dreaming minds and destroys the ordered chaos of the dreaming until all the dreams are one, and then it collapses in on itself. It also takes the minds of the dreamers with it when it does this, and it damages the dreaming beyond repair. Uh, Dream says about this, he says, it leaves nothing but darkness. But it has only actually gotten that far one time. That was eons ago and also half a universe away. But when this happened, an entire world perished. Dream failed in his duty in that moment. And that is something that is never going to happen again, he says. Uh, And then he goes on to explain that while he is the Lord of the Dreaming, he is not omnipotent, not in the world and, and not even here in his own realm. But he does want to assure Rose that death doesn't have to be a bad thing. And anyway, once she's dead, she could actually even stay in the dreaming if she wants, right? We've seen Matthew the Raven doing that already. And this conversation ends now when Gilbert shows up. We're going to need to backtrack a bit to actually deal with that. Uh, But first, I think, right, we need to pause and talk about this backstory here, right? One of the agendas of this podcast has been to try to break down the metaphysics of Gaiman's speculative world. This conversation obviously has a ton for us to unpack. Uh, We might actually be on this for a while. I've got a list of questions here. I'm sure you do as well, Brent. But maybe let's start by observing that Dream has responsibilities that extend across the universe, right? All the galaxies, every star system, every planet. I think probably we had guessed that already, but here it's explicit, really spelled out for us. But the question then that I have about this, what I want to ask you, Brent, is what does Dream mean by a world? when he talks about a world being lost. Is he talking about a planet? Uh, And if so, is it the case then that each planet has its own dreaming or its own part of the dreaming maybe to itself and that that is what will be destroyed by the vortex? How do do you make sense of this? What does he mean by world? Well, and Glenn, I mean, that's a good question. And I'm not entirely sure. I originally was thinking planet because planet, world, world, planet, but also because of the imagery where he's holding a sphere And so I'm thinking about a globe and I'm thinking about, you know, him holding, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm thinking about an entire world and faces. And in the image, we see, you know, similar looking faces as if it's all from some kind of similar human or humanoid type species. But we've also seen here where there are pockets and elsewhere in DC continuity, where there are like pockets of other worlds and that kind of are separate from things and different DC cosmology, whether there's a great maelstrom or, you know, later when they try to incorporate things from the bleed, when they try to weave in the Wildstorm stuff. So I, I don't know that it's entirely clear whether we're talking about a whole planet being lost or a civilization that maybe even expands o- over multiple planets, or if we mean even just the world for whoever is in a certain area of a certain time. So, 
you know, when we think about the bubble world that had kind of existed within Jed's mind. I mean, he didn't, that's not just discussed as a world, but if that wasn't just a dream manifestation, if that was some separate place where, you know, the Justice League could have been trapped for eons fighting Ragnarok or whatever, then that might be a world, even though it's not a planet, so to speak. Um, but did you have any thoughts on this? Well, I love that you point out that the the art really is is what's kind of subconsciously prompting us to think about this as a planet to begin with. It, it really does look like the way that DC Comics in the the 80s anyway did outer space stuff, right? If Superman's out in space, we're getting a story on Krypton. It kind of looks like this. If we're dealing with Apocalypse, we've got some Green Lantern stuff going on. It kind of looks like this. And so it it's suggesting that to us for sure. But somehow that just doesn't feel quite right to me and I, and you you've really nailed it right by thinking about what are the other worlds that we have seen in this story we've seen hell right that's clearly a distinct place but it's not a planet at least not so far as we can tell anyway uh we haven't had very much of it yet though we will not not much of a spoiler to say that but we will get some more about fairy as a place coming up we, we've had that mentioned in uh men of good fortune al- already that fairy exists uh, but that also is you know its own self-contained world, but it's not a planet. Though, on the other hand, I guess fairy and, and hell are connected to Earth in some way. So, yeah, I just have to have to wonder, right? Can the vortex, can a dream vortex happen in hell? Can it happen in fairy? Or is that something that would happen on Earth and then affect fairy and hell? Or if it did happen in hell, would it also affect Earth? I mean, we don't have enough information to go on here. So really, we're just kind of asking the question to, to ask the, the question to point out that we need to keep our eye on this to see if uh, if we'll get some answers. Another interesting thing about this backstory that Dream gives us, Glenn, is, you know, he, when describing what a vortex is, says he doesn't know why, which raises a lot of questions. But then he also says it's a mortal who briefly becomes the center of the dreaming. Um, When we hear mention of the vortex a few issues back, when Dream is talking to Lucian, Lucian asks about it. And Lucian seems surprised to learn that it is the form of a mortal. So I don't know if this is just some retconning going on here where it's like, no, no, it's always immortal. Or if it's just an early pronoun discussion, but I don't think so. If this, this almost feels to me like it's the writing might've been tightened a little bit to heighten the stakes as to what dream does each time to make it clearly a mortal here. And when he was talking to Lucian before, it may not have been narrowed to the idea of a mortal and, but, but I'm not sure. I, it's kind of going back a little bit, Glenn, but uh, do you have any particular thoughts on, you know, is this something that maybe if you could go back and revise things and if he was writing a novel, then this would have been the point in which you go back when you're writing the novel or the short story and you're on page 10 and you go back and you're like, nope, in page one, uh, let me change that noun. Uh, versus here where you've got comics that have been coming out for years now, you can't go back and change things. So you, you, you kind of clues it together and you make it work. And occasionally you and the audience have to, you know, just politely write some stuff off and not hold it against you. Cause again, you're writing it episodically over years. That's a very minor detail as opposed to the idea that there even is a vortex. It's not like we're introducing a vortex suddenly, you know, in season 12 of something. No, we've set that up that there is a vortex, but the idea of it being immortal. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think this is a mistake, right? It's just a sort of mistake that happens when you're doing serialized storytelling. It's not, you know, the first time we've encountered this or anyone else has encountered uh, an inconsistency like this. But yeah, I think 
that just shows us that when Gaiman came up with the idea of let's do a dream vortex, let's have it be a person, he didn't know necessarily how this was going to end. Well, he may actually have known how it was going to end, but what he didn't know was the backstory. We can maybe see some fingerprints in this issue about that as well. I mean, the 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 giving a speech to explain the backstory in the conclusion in the the last chapter of your story is not generally the best storytelling and is often a sign that you had an idea, you had a kind of MacGuffin, you had a concept and you knew what your plot was going to be, but you didn't really know what the backstory was until you got here. And now you're you're sort of shoehorning it in here. Gaiman is such a talented wordsmith that we don't mind, right? It doesn't feel painful to to read this. In fact, it's actually, it's quite awesome. It's quite good. But it does, I think, suggest, if not totally indicate that he didn't know until he got to this point what what the dream vortex was itself and why it was happening. And and that also might be why we have other questions that are are, are raised here. So... Another thing that I noticed when Dream is telling the story and he talks about how at one point it did happen that the Dream Vortex consumed the world. In that panel, the art appears to show almost like a scar on Dream's face. He's 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 brutally looking off into the sun, um, the violet background, um, and his Robert Smith hair is flopping in the wind. Um, but he looks like he has a scar on his right cheek. And and that's not something we typically see with him. In fact, oftentimes he has very smooth cheeks as if he's a dream figment. And so it's not as well defined. But here his, his features kind of come into relief. Very strong chin work. But looks like a scar to me. I, did you have any thoughts on that? Did, that, uh, did you notice that when you're reading through it? There are a number of lines on his face that are are mostly shading, but you're right to say that the the drawing here really is emphasizing the sort of angularity of his uh, of his face, right? The the sharp features, the sharp chin, sharp cheekbones. So I don't know. Maybe this was supposed to be doing something like that. Maybe it looked different before it was it was colored. Yeah, I don't know that it's really a scar. We certainly have not. We certainly don't see our contemporary dream with this. And I guess this is supposed to be something of, you know, a flashback that we're seeing here. But yeah, if it really is a scar, then we wonder, you know, well, well, you know, what kind of ointment is he using to get rid of that, right? I mean, maybe he's not omnipotent, but he can get rid of scars. But there might be something else going on with the the nature of the corporealness, the bodilyness of of dream. And we've certainly seen him choose not to be bodied, before, right? We've seen Hippolyta uh, kind of run through him, for example. Uh, so so maybe he can erase scars when he wants to. Well, I've got a couple more questions, and, and this is really just me putting my historian hat on. Uh, Dream says this happens once in an era, and I have to ask, what is an era? What unit of time is that, right? How often do eras <laughs> actually occur? I do not think we can answer this, but maybe you've got something. Well, I think it's... Um slightly shorter than an eon but uh <laughs> slightly longer than um yeah epoch maybe logomorph? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah i don't <laughs> yeah this is this is this is gaiman not wanting to pin too much on this right by not being specific about uh about what he means but i suspect that dream would have a sense of like what's the pattern of this how frequently does this happen and why is that the frequency in with which it happens or in which it happens. Uh, but we don't get that. I don't think we're ever going to gonna get that. But uh, I wondered, era just seemed like an interesting choice to choice here. It's not the word I would have chosen if I were trying to be deliberately vague about a, a time period. Well, and it is interesting because he, at some point, knew that there was a vortex. It's not clear at what point, you know, as we'll see 
as we go, but let's just say Rose becomes a vortex. Has she always effectively been a vortex? But there's a point in which her vortexness ripens to be the problem, but he's been tracking for a while. Or is it that there is just a clear moment and then he it's it's really when he starts feeling ripples in the dreaming does he have a vortex detector and i guess your question is in terms of how long is a neon is can he turn the vortex detector off to save energy like you know 900 years or so and then it just automatically can flip back on i like to think this is actually like a bureaucratic department in the the dreaming not that it's like some kind of machine like they've got badges maybe cool sunglasses uh, some kind of uniform or or something like that but you know i will say that this is this is not really a huge deal we are picking nits that is sort of the thing that this podcast does it's not nearly as flagrantly not right at all as the uh the opening to the first two seasons of uh buffy the vampire slayer or really just the first season and a half, I suppose, where we're told that once a generation, a Slayer is born. And then over the course of the show, we see three different people be the Slayer in the course of two years. It's like, do you know what generation means? Right. So, you know, we can cut some slack here. Uh, But there is one last thing I want to point out. And again, this is with my historian hat on. And this is something that maybe I, I take a little more seriously than some of the other silly things I've been pointing out. But this is Dream's conception of his role, his his position here. Uh, one of the things that I'm interested in as a scholar is the ideology and the the practice of rulership during and after the fall of the Roman Empire, where we have a massive state that disintegrates into constituent parts, each of which then puts together a new state in, in similar but also sometimes quite distinct ways. And the question of who gets to be in charge? Why? Also, what does in charge even mean? These are, are questions that these new states are having to answer. And these are questions that really fascinate me. This is what most of my research has been about. And so when Dream here quibbles with Rose about his title, right, she calls him king and he says, I'm not a king, I'm a lord. I am then immediately curious about what's at stake here, right? So the question I have for you, Brent, is why do you think he corrects her, right? Why is this important to him? I don't know because I don't know what the I, – I, I think – I guess maybe I do know. Here's my theory. My theory, Glenn, is he cares a lot about titles and responsibilities that he thinks he has and that he thinks his siblings have, um, as we'll increasingly see the discussion of how people bear or don't bear certain responsibilities going forward. And so the fact that he is the Lord of Dreams and – you know, who knows where that's bestowed from, but it has been bestowed and therefore it must be respected. He has a very, in a D and D alignment chart kind of, <laughs> you know, lawful approach to things. It may occasionally look lawful evil. Certainly it's probably lawful neutral most of the time, but he has a very definitive, no, no, my title is Lord. That is my title. Um, it could also be. The idea that a king has a kingdom and kingdoms rise and fall all the time relative to he's a lord, which is just kind of the kind of a broader, more nebulous thing. So it could mean less. But in this case, it means far more because he's lord of the dreaming and the dreaming maybe only rises and falls when there is a vortex that gets out of control. But I think it's just his kind of almost fiendish devotion to what has been in his mind a proper ordered progression of things he doesn't do well with chaos 
Well, I think we're going to be talking about the extent to which he is uh, lawful, either evil, good or neutral, but the lawfulness part of his alignment here in a little bit. I want to go totally off the rails here, and and then we will actually leave this one page behind uh, eventually here. So I, I want to zoom in on this word, Lord, because Lord has a crazy etymology. We don't use this word in our daily lives anymore, but when we do encounter this word, and especially... I'm thinking here just of us as Americans, it's usually in a religious context, right? Lord is a word that appears all over the Bible to mean God, also then sometimes to mean Jesus. We also can use this word in a social and political context from the high Middle Ages and also early modernity to refer to someone who exercises power within a feudal system. This is the context of the British House of Lords, which is still with us, for example. But the word doesn't actually mean any of these things. It doesn't mean God. It it doesn't mean feudal wielder of power. It signifies those things, but it doesn't mean them. What it means is bread guardian, right? Someone who guards the bread. It is an Anglo-Saxon word. It's it's, it's a compound word, of course, really. And it's uh, developed into this feudal meaning that we have, uh, really for particular historical reasons that I I won't go into. But but here's where I think this matters, or at least can be interesting to think about in the context here of, of this conversation, because this is one of the very few English words that is actually English, right? Meaning that it's derived from Anglo Saxon and not from Latin via Middle French. This word is not Greek, it's not Danish. And so most of the time that we are actually encountering the word Lord, it is being used as a translation for another word, right? And something that's a translation from another language. So, right, none of the people who wrote the Bible, for example, ever used the word Lord because, hey, they weren't writing in Anglo-Saxon or, you know, modern English either, for that matter. And the word that they most often were writing that we English speakers have decided to translate as Lord is actually the word that means slave owner or master of slaves, right? This is the ancient context for this word. It's a little bit different in the medieval use of the word, but feudal lords are called lords because they are masters of serfs. And and really, maybe we should translate the word serf as well, and then it would mean masters of semi-servile dependent workers over whom we have the power of life and death, right? So really actually not all that different from master of slaves. So the crazy question, the totally off-the-rails question I have here, Brent, is, is Dream calling himself a slave owner here? Is his relationship with the dreaming with his realm, that of a master of slaves? Is he lord of dreams because dreams are his slaves? Ooh. Um, I mean, you might be on something in terms of his relationship with the dreams themselves. Um, although it's not that the slave master creates the slave, although they may create the condition of servitude that rises to that, but because we've seen him actually create and uncreate the Corinthian and other nightmares. And, um, there are certainly denizens of the dreaming, I think who also fall under him, who he doesn't create, although maybe he's more like the landlord there in terms of Cain and Abel. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I wonder if it's, if it's also the idea of Lord though, not in terms of slave master, but in terms of that there are specific duties he is performing that would be attributed to an English Lord. And some of those, you know, allow the Lord to have power over the serfs within their domain, um, and perhaps abuse that power. Um, but 
also the idea of uh, the noble obligation here to take care of the things within it. So he takes care of the dream. He takes care of the dreams. And he also, in some ways, takes care of the dreamers, at least when they are in his realm. This is one of the rare instances we're told where he can kill a mortal and otherwise he generally shouldn't be doing that. But since mortals are all entering his realm at some point or many points in their lives or, you know, even nightly, he certainly would have more kind of power to, to do damage if he wished to, but maybe it has to do with his obligations. In that sense, also, then when you talk about a slave and slave master, then I think about kind of the very dark view that some slave masters historically and particularly U.S. have had over their role where they have an obligation to, you know, take care of their slaves, but which is a nice way of deluding themselves into justifying a, a, a terrible um, system. I think you've really hit on something here, Brent, to think about this in terms of the sort of medieval relationship or the medieval understanding of this word and what it means to be a lord, what it means to be a master over your serfs in the, the Middle Ages and what types of powers that bestows on you. One of the things that's that's actually kind of a contentious issue uh, among historians of the early part of what we might call the feudal age, I would never actually call it that professionally, but we can go ahead and call it that here, is how did this system develop, right? How did uh, wealthy landowners, that's who we're talking about here as lords, how did wealthy landowners actually get the powers that we see them have over their workers? Because what we're talking about here is it's not just that they're the source of employment, that they they own the land and that people are farming the land and they have the sorts of powers over you that an employer might have over you, which is like, hey, I can fire you and then you won't you know, be able to pay your rent or your mortgage or buy groceries and, and, and so on. But that lords also, in addition to being the employer of their laborers, their workers, are also able to exercise judicial power over them, right? So if anyone who works, anyone who works for them breaks any kind of law, it doesn't really matter what it is, it's their employer, it's their boss who will hear their case and decide uh, if they really should pay that speeding ticket or pay that fine for, for whatever, whatever it might be, right? When we can think about what this might actually look like in our lives and it would be, it would be awful. But then they also have a, a right to raise private armies. and But all of those things are powers that they have simply because they have taken them, simply because they are wealthy landowners. They have these powers because no one has has checked them from having these powers. No one has taken those powers back from them. These powers aren't conferred on them by anyone else. They don't get them as a grant from the state or some kind of public commonwealth or even from a king. But these lords often have other titles that they use as well. And these are the titles that people people will know, right? Uh, you know, even if just from fantasy novels or D&D or whatever, like Baron, Earl, Count, Duke, uh, and and so on. Those are titles that do actually come from the state, that there are bestowed on people by the king. And lords usually have one of those titles. But it's actually the fact that they are a lord that is really the source of their power and not this title. And so maybe thinking back very long-windedly here, I know, but thinking back to what you were just saying earlier, Brent, about where does this even come from, right? Why does he get to be the Lord of Dreams or the Lord of the Dreaming? Maybe that's what Gaiman is signaling here, is he he is the Lord simply because he has this power. There is nothing, there is no one that confers this on him. That's not the type of system that we're looking at. Well, it's interesting, Glenn, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, barons and counts and dukes and, you know, and I tie those titles also to different 
sizes of domains that they are authorities of. You know, a duke has their, their duchy or dukey. Uh, a baron has a barony, a count, county, um, a king, kingdom, as we mentioned. But the idea that just a lord without having the limitation of saying I'm not a king is that I'm not, I'm, uh, you can't bound me to a geographic you know, plat of land the way you could these other lords. And because the dreaming, while there are many lands within it, um, and we get to spend quite a bit of time with one particular land, this issue even, it doesn't really have a physical space and it, it with absolute values that, you know, can, you know, be transferred easily in title form. Um, instead, he's just kind of more of a nebulous, I am a lord, and I have power over the dreaming, but the dreaming is not the equivalent of saying, well, how big of a baron, barony or, you know, how big of a county is the dreaming? It's like, no, it, it, it's, it's infinitely big and infinitely small simultaneously. That's a fantastic observation there. I, I don't know that we've really solved this. I'm not actually sure that if we asked Gaiman, he would really have an answer about why he did this. But I'm satisfied with the answers that we've uh, we've come up with here. So I feel like that has justified the entire existence of this podcast. But uh, I will say that now that we have, uh, I say we have, but really it's now that I have made us spend, I don't know, was that 15 minutes or so talking about etymology uh, translations? Uh, we can get back to our story, I guess. And, and let's go see what, what Gilbert is up to. So uh, Gilbert and Matthew have returned to the Dreaming, and Gilbert is traveling on foot as he hurries to reach Dream before he is going to kill Rose. Uh, Gilbert wants to prevent that from happening, though he is clear that he doesn't think that he'll succeed at all, but that does not mean that he shouldn't try. I have to say this is a moral philosophy that I try to follow in my life. It's also basically the exact plot of The Lord of the Rings. Just because we know we're going to fail doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do the right thing, especially when it comes to protecting people. But at any rate, when when Gilbert reaches Dream and Rose, what he does is offer to die in her place, but that's just not how this works, and so there's not really anything to be done. And finally, right now, at long last, in this scene, we learn the full deal with Gilbert, which is this. He is Fiddler's Green. He is that last of the four major arcana that left the Dreaming during Dream's imprisonment. And of course, he is a place and not a person, right? He's a place that sailors dream of. You explained that to us several episodes ago, Brent. And there is some tension here in the scene, I have to say, as we wonder what punishment Gilbert is going to get for abandoning his post, right? Dream executed the Corinthian. He imprisoned Brute and Glob for an indefinite amount of time. So we have to be wondering here, what punishment is Fiddler's Green going to receive? But the answer is nothing, because Gilbert didn't cause any mischief. He was merely curious about what it's like to be a human. And so because of that, Dream merely makes him take up his post again. And Gilbert's last words to Rose here are, you were the best thing about being human. After your death, if you do stay in the dreaming, then visit me. Walk in my meadows and my green glades. Rest beneath my trees. and. With that, Gilbert disappears, and the the barren whiteness that we've got behind us, this this barren white landscape, this is replaced by a verdant mountain paradise, a beautiful place. I'd like to go hiking there. And and look, I love Gilbert. I'm glad that Gilbert's not going to get punished. But I think we have to go back to thinking about Dream's character alignment here in D&D, right? I don't think this is consistent with Dream's focus on rules. I don't think this is consistent with his lawfulness here. What, what, What do you think? So it's interesting because the way that Dream words it is that he can't find his 
in his heart to punish him. It's interesting that he's looking at his heart, um, but there's a lot of heart motifs going on. But he says not now as if, well, it, is it because of what is going on now? So he's he's really busy with this vortex. I'm not going to deal with this now. Um, or is it, yeah, I've learned a lot between my own imprisonment and between seeing like what Brute and Glob and the Corinthian did in my absence. So to see that you decided you wanted to try to, per, you know, cosplay as GK Chesterton <laughs> for a while, and then you show up to try to offer to die instead of this young woman. That's not really that bad. You didn't like create a separate dream realm inside of child's head and, and, you know, have him in the mortal world, you know, manipulate people into keeping him prison and torturing him. Um, and you're not inspiring a bunch of serial killers. No, you're just trying to be one of Neil Gaiman's favorite writers and, (laughs) (laughs) and dream as, you know, for lack of a better phrase right now, kind of the patron saint of writers, right? He's respecting that. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, did you have any thoughts on the not now sentence? Because he's got – Dream has his – you know, the image in the panel is that Dream has his arms crossed. Matthew is on his shoulder. So it's very kind of officious looking in, in, in the way that Dream can look officious. And he's just decided I'm not going to do something else. And is it that – is the difference that, I guess to answer your question, that Fiddler Green returned to him? So there's not the reason. The reason why we oftentimes punish people is to deter future conduct by either that person or by other people who might similarly consider the same crime. So otherwise, you know, punitive actions taken not to deter future actions oftentimes just look like revenge and is it that dream no longer is someone who is as embraced by revenge as maybe he was when he had Nada imprisoned in hell well that is a really interesting point of comparison (laughs) here right i mean even more so than brute and glob and the corinthian but but thinking about what's the point of punishing somebody yeah i guess we have to wonder right if the corinthian had come back if brute and glob had come back if if brute and glob had come back would all have been for forgiven his dream uh, empathetic at least to the idea that these people realized that he dream their lord was imprisoned and and maybe not coming back that the whole system is broken down and so maybe it might have made some sense for them to go off and and do something else if the whole system is broken but that what really dream is doing when he's punishing the corinthian and brute and glob is punishing them for not returning when he made himself known though gilbert doesn't really do that either he does actually have to have matthew kind of sent for him so maybe maybe that's not quite right and 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 getting to your question about the the not now uh, yeah that 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 really could mean a couple of different things right it might be a, a double entendre there and that it's it's meaning uh, at this point right now because of everything that you gilbert have done or or what i've just heard you say this offer you've made how could i possibly find it in my heart to punish you at this point but it might also just mean he's busy and that he'll he'll punish him later or he might find it in his heart later when he revisits this and and maybe maybe he will so I briefly want to talk, Glenn, about the imagery when we see uh, Fiddler's Green, Gilbert, first returning to the Dreaming and Matthew is flying above him. Um, we have a couple different panels. Um, one 
which is somewhat interesting in that it's a kind of evocative of, you know, the Fortress of Solitude or other kind <laughs> of you know, Kryptonian art with lots of crystals and stuff, um, which th- I think that's fun. But more so is interesting to me and I think was worthy of quick discussion is um, the first panel we see Gilbert, there's a bunch of hands like reaching up towards him or towards maybe anything from the ground. And, and we don't see anything other than the arms. Um, I can't tell if this is supposed to be like a nightmare where it's a, you know, grassland full of grasping hands that they're trying to get you. But the coloration, colorization, both that Robbie Bush originally did, as well as that Zelenol redid, uh, doesn't really change here between the two. So it's kind of these muted colors as if it's the background. So I don't know if it's just supposed to be something strange and just the dreaming, oh, there's a bunch of arms, or if it's Fiddler's Green, Fiddler's Green as the dream of a place that sailors or others would want to go. I mean, just look at the images we're given. Like that's certainly if you, or if you're able to die somewhere in the dreamland of all the places we've seen so far, I mean, you and I would be, want to be in with Lucian in the library, but <laughs> most people would want to be, particularly those without allergies would want to be in Fiddler's Green. And so is this dreamers who are reaching towards wanting that, you know, kind of, literally in some ways heavenly dreamland where they can just play in the meadows and enjoy the waterfall and just relax and let pressure go and kind of, you know, um, uh, what are your thoughts on kind of that panel and what's going on with those hands? I really do love the world building that the art is doing here just in the background and and, and in the background of some really heavy, really important text, right? This conversation that, that Matthew and Gilbert are having as they go is really important. And so it's easy to to lose sight of what is actually going on in the background to, to flesh out what the dreaming is for. I think you've done a great job of explicating all of that to, to really think about what what's up with the hands, though. I think we actually do see something else in that image, which is that there are strands of grass like the the tops of grass that has gone to seed uh i think probably most of us would would think of this kind of image as actually being wheat which of course is a type of grass that's where we've seen what this looks like before so it does kind of line up with something you're suggesting brent which is that this is just a field of arms that are like growing out of the ground like grasping arms which i have to think is clearly someone's nightmare, right? That you're just running through a field and it's just hands, you know, coming up from the dirt, grabbing at you. This is actually an image we get a lot in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, in fact, and it is a terrifying image. Yeah, so I think this has to be someone's nightmare that they're just wandering through. And they do seem to be on kind of a path through it, maybe. So there's, you know, there's some path you can navigate through the field of grasping arms, which actually that's a pretty, uh, yeah, it's a pretty terrifying thing there. Well, and maybe in this case, then the the nightmare field of grasping arms, the colorization where it's muted and it doesn't appear that threatening. We don't have like, you know, stark reds or anything or or kind of, you know, even almost a disquieting blues um, where it just looks like they're being starved of oxygen. Um, it could be just because they are. This is a nightmare that exists in the dreaming, but because Matthew and Fielders Green Gilbert are also dreams themselves the arms don't care about them they're just there so it's just you know it's like you or i walking through a grass field the grass doesn't care whereas if you or i had this dream like all of a sudden we'd have you know very dark sky and maybe some thunderclouds and harsh reds and you know 
the sound of someone telling you that you forgot to put on your pants before you left the house that day. <laughs> like, you know, just nightmare type stuff layered on that. But because that's not what's going on, that's just kind of sort of great. Or is it just, is this, it's hard to tell what's going on. Cause we last issue, we had the swirl of the, you know, because of Rose being the vortex dreams were getting intermingled. And this episode issue, we don't really have a strong sense as to, are there still, you know, has Dream fully restored the barriers between Dreamers? Or are there still kind of bits where things are are, are clusing through or, or um, you know, fault lines amongst Dreamers? And it's not clear, clear to me. So I really like the starkness of the art throughout. Um, but I'm left with a lot of questions after where the art had left us last issue. Well, I'd like to think that this uh, this nightmare of these hands that grow out of the ground, what they're actually trying to do is just take your pants off. It's really just a dream about having your pants ripped off in public or something like that. Well, well, I don't know if we'll ever see this part of the dreaming again. I, I hope we do. I hope it gets its, its own spinoff series at some point. It certainly certainly deserves <laughs> it. I don't know what that storyline would actually be, but well, I would read it. But uh, let's let's carry on with with the story here. So so Gilbert has failed to exchange his life for roses, but we're not actually done with that idea yet. The idea of exchange here. Uh, we're back in England with Miranda and Unity, and Unity Kincaid is dying here in this moment. She wishes that she'd been able to be a good mother to Miranda and she loses her grip on life here. Uh, she's drifting first off to sleep, thinking of her childhood dreams of a tall, dark man whose eyes danced like twin stars. And as she gives into that sleep, she finally understands. And then Unity dreams. Uh, this is a line that is a great callback to the very first issue. And then Unity is there. She's in Fiddler's Green, or at least a, a younger version of herself is there in Fiddler's Green. She's maybe Rose's age. And this is just as Dream is about to kill Rose. Stop that, she says. Rose isn't going to die tonight. I am. And the deal is this, right? Unity Kincaid was supposed to be the Vortex, but Dream's imprisonment put all of that on hold. And somehow, we'll talk more about this later, but somehow this passed to her granddaughter instead. And so now she tells Rose to use Dream logic to reach inside her and rip out whatever it is that makes her the Vortex. So... Rose does that. She shoves her hand in her chest. She pulls out her own heart, which is actually a heart-shaped ruby, and gives it to Unity. And that's it. Uh, Dream kills Unity instead of Rose, and the danger is over. The vortex has been destroyed, crisis averted, and Dream tells Rose that her family has suffered enough and that he will bring Jed back from his coma. And then she woke up, right? And then she woke up is uh, really the end of the plot here, though we have quite a bit of epilogue to to deal with as well. But but what a great ending, right? This is not at all how I expected Gaiman to weave these plot threads together. This was not where I thought this story was going. And, and I love the way that Gaiman does that. Yeah, it, it's really great. And I like how Unity's tale kind of wrapping up here kind of gives a happy high note in some ways to her being able to be assertive at the end of her life, um, to save her granddaughter's life after having spent, you know, most of her life in the sleeping sickness coma that was induced on her and which should, during that time she was you know sexually assaulted and has very little memory of having a daughter until she meets her when she's much older, uh, Miranda, um, but here we have unity, you know, being able to be assertive, take charge, 
knows far more than Dream does. And that's an interesting thing, Glenn. I'm not sure why Unity has been able to piece all of this together so well, (laughs) but she has. And here Unity knows things well enough as to be able to dictate to, to Dream, who is, again, very bound by what the rules are, or at least he thinks they are. To, to inform him, no, you just, you need to kill the Vortex. Rose isn't the Vortex. And it's not just a matter of like, oh, well, then I can kill you. It's like the Vortex is a thing. So let's, it'll be manifest in some way. And we have it manifest in this heart. And we should touch back on the heart imagery in a little bit. But, but what are your thoughts on Unity kind of, um, it's great to see her in these great empowering panels, but why does she know so much? Yeah, it seems like it's something that just, comes to her right this is this is how this is demonstrated this kind of intuition she has just as she's just in the last moments of her life we don't really get any kind of action there narrated to us right i mean that's the whole reason this is a is a a question so what is it that happens in our last moments as we're about to expire do we suddenly get some clarity about our lives right is she actually seeing that the meaning I mean, maybe this is thinking about the way that uh, as we think we're we're going to die, as we're expecting to die, or, you know, just having our 40th birthday or something like that, we start to think about what has been the meaning of our life, what's it all been about. Maybe she's doing that. And in that moment has some actual insight that all of this has been wrong. It's all gone wrong, that she's gotten some kind of numinous insight from, I don't know, the powers that be from the, the universe, the cosmos somehow. It, it, I suppose it may be that actually she's visited by death in this moment and we just don't see that or get that narrated. I think that's probably unlikely. I think the Gaiman is more likely pointing to some kind of just numinous moment where you get the story of your life kind of clarified for you as you're about to expire. In the first panel, when we see Unity lying in her, what ends up being her deathbed, um, and she says she thinks he's going to have to sleep now, there's, I think, what's supposed to be the luminescence coming off of a light, given the somewhat gothic nature of these tales. Let's pretend it's a candle. <laughs> but uh, it could be anything next to her bed, and it's, but it's causing almost a, a, a kind of a holy, kind of a halo kind of effect around her head. But it's... In both the original colorization um, as well as the recolorized, it's, you know, almost exactly the same kind of white with a slight bit of pale blue edge. In fact, the pale blue is even easier for me to see in some ways in the original colorization. Um, But I don't know if it's just because that's the color and in the original colorization, the details of the pillow and of unity are kind of an orangish color. So that's not, you can't use that color for the light, which you normally would. So you're just blue is just happens to be what it is. Or if the blue or white is supposed to be, it's kind of a neutral shade of blue versus kind of a warm light. But I, I but I think it is, I mean, it's literally iconographic in terms of having this kind of halo effect around her head, much like you might see in artistic pieces of, you know, mother Mary in which there's kind of the halo effect around Mary, as well as around like many artistic depictions of uh, Jesus as a character. 
Well, I think this is a great catch. I, I didn't think about this at all. Usually this is my job actually to be pointing out on, on any of the podcasts we do on the network. It's usually my job to be pointing out that someone might be Jesus or someone might be the Virgin Mary. Well, I think this is a fantastic observation. This really does look very much like a halo. And she is about to sacrifice herself for others. That is the story of, of Christ in the, the Gospels, this idea of, of uh, giving himself up so that others might live more or less that is what unity is doing here so i think that's uh, that's a great catch that there's something holy to to what she's up to here uh, i have thought maybe a little bit further as well I've, I've kind of just revisited the text directly here i think gaiman might actually be trying to point to here that unity learns this from dream right uh we get this description of of dream and this tall, dark man whose eyes danced like twin stars in her head uh, whispers the the truth. So maybe it really is actually from dream that she learns this. Though that raises a lot of other questions, especially if this is all happening at the same time, because while this is happening, dream is busy with Rose. We don't really see him go deal with someone else, though, of course, he must be dealing with all sorts of dreams at the same time, right? This must be just some kind of avatar in some way that we're we're dealing with that might not be this this might not be the best place to to ask this question since we've been at this for almost an hour and we're still not done with this uh with this issue uh but it certainly raises a number of questions so um rose pulls this kind of glass heart um i use that wording in very intentionally uh from her chest and hands it to unity i think this is supposed to obviously look like the shards of glass of that are found in the desert back in the the first prologue story to this entire collection of Doll's House, where we had um, the uncle telling his young nephew the story that they all men of a certain age here in their um, growing up. And it's the story of Dream falling in love with Nada and that not going well for him and going really badly for her. And we have these glass shards that look like hearts. And here we have a shard that looks like a heart. And we'll see the shard that looks like a heart kind of a little bit later in this issue, which we'll talk about. But let's just talk about in terms of, you know, the connection with the Nada story. Glenn, do you think that the image of the heart here is just because of some kind of underlying current or metaphor about dreams love or passion and kind of the dangerousness of that and the fact that someone is going to die or worse as a result of those things this is again a, a really great observation here thinking about the way that this connects back to the the first issue that we get i'll, I'll confess i wasn't thinking about that i i was actually thinking of the the porpentine that we just got in the previous issue which is uh another kind of gem or like precious object that has a sort of pink color but i think you're right to say that this looks much more like it has or it has many more properties in common with the the glass that we get in the the desert in the first issue in the 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 doll's house from from nada's story and certainly that's all in keeping with the theme of of passion or or love this sort of uh, that is that is i think the glue for all of this where we're seeing people uh, act out of different types of love in, in every issue but then also act in the the service of different types of passions or succumb maybe in in some cases to different types of of passions i i think that's a great way to to see the the, the theme here and you'll be happy to hear, Glenn, um, that Leslie Klinger in the Annotated Sandman um, has the same questions we have um, <laughs> when we're reviewing this. He does note that um, 
the panel on this page where they're handing the hearts over compares exactly to um, the issue nine, page four, panel three, and notes that the panels are virtually identical. The significance is unclear. Is the presence of vortices the price of Morpheus's love for Nada? I think that's a fair question. I don't think the answer is yes, because I think that the vortices maybe existed before Nada. I don't, there's not a reference that the one necessarily led to the other, but I think they are connected um, in some way, even if it's just kind of metaphorically regarding maybe dreams obligations. Cause he was ignoring what Nada seemed to indicate were the natural kind of uh, does the ordered way of things in pursuing her and in, in insisting on their relationship versus um and he wasn't keeping true to making sure that he was being careful of the mortals he's interacting with not just nada but also all of the mortals of her kingdom and the risk that it could have to them because that's the reason why she was running is also because she saw the danger that could come so i, I think that I think it's uncertain, but I think it's related in some ways and we might see more as we go and we might have to look for, um, additional heart imagery. Um, Leslie, uh, I'm sorry. Um, high bender in his Sandman companion has a, um, a bit of an interview snippet of an interview with Neil in which, um, Neil does reference that hearts are throughout dollhouse and that he thinks the word heart at least appears probably in every issue, um, which doesn't really get at the satisfaction that I'm looking for here, but <laughs> I think we should keep looking for heart imagery, just like we were looking for clock imagery out of preludes and nocturnes, even as we go forward to see how these things might kind of echo and reappear or morph somewhat as we go through the Sandman run. Yeah, absolutely. And even while you've been pointing all of this out, I have just typed onto my notes for the wrap-up episode that we will do next month, Hearts. It's there on the uh, on the themes for us to, to talk about. And that's going to help when I go back and reread the the whole volume straight through like it's a, a novel that I can read in one one go. I'm going to I'm gonna make a catalog of, of all the, the places where we do see Hearts. I don't know. We'll test the veracity of Gaiman's statement there if Hearts do actually appear in uh in every issue all right we we do have two codas two epilogues maybe uh so let's deal with them individually and first up is rose six months have passed and now with the wealth that they've inherited from unity rose and jed and their mother are living in a big old house outside of seattle and one thing i definitely have to point out be before we get to the the substance of this coda is that it is narrated by rose and it begins with that was six months ago, which indicates to me that what we have just been reading has been narrated by Rose as she writes in her diary, right? That's where we get the, and then she woke up as well. That that doesn't, we don't, we get that before we realize what's going on here. But here's what I, I want to bring up, Brent. So maybe Rose was actually the narrator of Collectors the whole time, right? Maybe this whole story arc has been Rose's <laughs> diary. Uh, this this is not going to be the last time we hear about this obsession, but we've got only one more month for me to be obsessed about this, and then I will drop it. But but that's maybe my sense of what the answer is, that this, this whole thing's narrated by Rose. I mean, I think she might be narrating at least part of it. There are obviously things that uh, she wouldn't have known what happened to the fake bogeyman, um, or even that any of that was going down. But... Um... But yeah, I think that there could be many bits that are particularly in Rose's story and those around her, you know, Jed and Miranda and even Hal, like the bits we have maybe all from Rose's 
kind of point of view or her filling in the gaps of how she imagines how terrible things were for Jed with the abusive aunt and uncle who were uh, caring for him. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I don't think this will actually stand up to any scrutiny, though. Again, this is going to be something I'm going to I'm going to be thinking about as I reread the whole thing before we talk. So I don't know. We'll, we'll try not to make too big of a deal about it, but I will I will report back my, my sort of final feelings about who's the narrator of collectors and maybe who's the narrator of the whole thing. But let's get to the substance of what's actually happening in this issue now or this 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 part of the issue anyway. So Rose has kept in touch with Hal and she's even gotten a letter from him with an update on everyone in the house in Florida. Hal is selling the house and moving out west because maybe there might be a new romantic relationship here. He's coy about that, though. Ken and Barbie have split up. I think we we saw that coming. Ken has a new partner who looks exactly like a younger Barbie. This, uh, I have to say, this strikes me as gross because how old are they anyway, right? I thought they were in their early 20s. Maybe I was wrong about that, but it strikes me as gross. But at any rate, Chantel and Zelda are buying the house from Hal. Uh, I do hope we see them again. I hope we see all of these people again, really. But this is all we get about this. This is how Gaiman wraps up these characters here. And what really matters here is that Rose has barely left her room the last six months. She's only been sneaking down to the kitchen late at night so she won't see Jed or her mother because she's having trouble processing all the crazy stuff that happened to her. And in addition to what we have seen on the page in this volume as her story, it turns out that Rose was actually quite connected to the events in Preludes and Nocturnes, not merely through her grandmother, but also as the best friend of Judy, who died in the diner in 24 hours. And of course, I think you've just been pointing this out already, Brent, right? Rose doesn't know what happened there the way that we do, right? To her, this was just a senseless massacre. On top of this, she's not sure if the dream about being a dream vortex here, uh, this dream about her grandmother's sacrifice was real or not. This is confusing for her. And I have to say, Gaiman has some great writing here about this. I think we should actually just read this. We don't do this uh, all that often here on the show, but this is some beautiful prose. And I think we should uh, just read that into the mic here. So here's what he writes. If my dream was true, then everything we know, everything we think we know, is a lie. It means the world's about as solid and reliable as a layer of scum on top of a well of black water which goes down forever, and there are things in the depths that I don't even want to think about. And uh, I have to say, right, for one, this is my new favorite simile of all time. That's really why I wanted to read that (laughs) aloud. Uh, But now let's just go ahead and do the the next paragraph, because it's also going to inform much of what we talk about in our wrap-up episode next month. So here's, here's what Rose writes. It means that we're just dolls. We don't have a clue what's really going down. We just kid ourselves that we're in control of our lives while the papers thickness away. Things that would drive us mad if we thought about them for too long play with us and move us around from room to room and put us away at night when they're tired or bored. And uh, that's a lot to handle there, right? Uh, Rose is clearly suffering or at least has been suffering from depression and anxiety. Also, maybe reading too much Lovecraft with that that simile there uh, and this sort of cosmic fatalism here, cosmic nihilism here, I guess. But now she is doing better. She is ready to come out of her room and we see her emerge uh, when, when she does this. She's gotten rid of her rainbow hair and now she actually looks exactly like the dream version of Unity, of Unity Kincaid. And she joins her mother and her brother. I have to say, I thought this was a fantastic way to end Rose's tale on this this upbeat moment here. With a new haircut. Yes, absolutely. Um, and with her new haircut, um, so she's dyed her hair red. 
I'm going to assume that her natural color was not red. And even if it is to go that drastically from the blonde with color in it to something that dark, she would probably have to be dying it. Um, but she looks a lot like her grandmother, I think, um, which I think is intentional. Um, I do want to note also there's, um, Leslie Klinger's, um, and it's annotation, uh, annotated Sandman does note um, some additional details that were in the script, but left off with, of um, what Rose is listening to and uh, reading. According to the script, Rose has been listening to Iggy Pop's The Idiot and Lust for Life, the Cowboy Junkies' The Trinity Session, and Lou Reed's Berlin. And the script specifically notes, quote, which tells us that she's probably fairly depressed and she's also rather richer than she was before, unquote. <laughs> I love that. But that is a great collection of albums. So um recommend listening to any of those. Also, there's the pile of books that we can see in her room um, where we can clearly see The Empire of the Senseless which is by Kathy Acker came out published in 1988 and we can see um, sleeping in flame uh, published also in 1988 by Jonathan Carroll. The script also noted that the pile of books contains Shirley Jackson's. We have always lived in the castle from 1962, um, which uh, Mr. Klinger notes is a novel about two girls who never leave their home. Uh, also in the stack should be, um, and this is, Going to strike a chord with you, Glenn. Uh, M.R. James's Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, <laughs> uh, which includes the short story Lost Hearts, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and also the stack of books should have Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror from 1978, which is a history of the 14th century, as all Leslie Klinger says. Uh, I don't know anything else about that particular volume. I don't know if you do. I, I do. It's literally right behind me as we're, we're talking. And uh, uh, Barbara Tuckman was a, a journalist, uh, not a, a historian, but she did write a really beautiful book about the 14th century, which was a, a century full of calamities. This is the century that Men of Good Fortune begins. In uh, This is the century of oh. the Black Death. It's the century of the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. And uh, Barbara Tuckman's idea here, I mean, the reason uh, calling it a, a distant mirror is that she was looking at the 14th century as being very much like the experience of the 20th century with horrible plagues and horrible wars that were uh, completely destructive. Uh, there probably are, in fact, there definitely are lots of things to quibble about from, uh, uh, you know, thinking of her writing about this as a journalist and not as a historian. But it is nonetheless a beautiful book and it's a great piece of intellectual history. Setting aside that book, we have covered 50% of those books somewhere here on the network, somewhere on Clay Temple Media. M.R. James, of course, as we talked about last episode, is someone we love to do over on Elder Sign. But also, uh, I, I mentioned ATAS, our new show here at the, the top. Uh, we Have Always Lived in the Castle is the Shirley Jackson book that I have covered. It's a book that is, an, is amazing. I loved that book. It's, uh, I think, episode number four, something like that, of ATAS. So uh, if you are interested in that, you can check that out. And uh, I will say I, I love Jonathan Carroll. I, I've not actually read this book. I've never read any Kathy Acker either. So I don't know. I'm going to add these to the next Patreon ballot, I guess, to decide what I cover on ATOS. And then someday we can we can definitively say that we've covered all of this on the on the network, which uh, I don't know. I don't know if you get any points for covering all of the things that show up in Neil Gaiman, but uh, I'll feel good about it anyway. I think you get points. I'm not sure where the points register and I'm not sure if it's like a strange tennis score or like <laughs> it's 15 love, although maybe it's 15 hearts or clocks. We'll have to see. Um, <laughs> I think you get to spend the points at the same place that dream gets his titles from wherever that is, but that's probably an awesome place to get, uh, to get some points. If you can uh, cash in the points to spend any time at all hanging out with, uh, you know, uh, the spider sisters, um, 
that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well worth it. Yeah. Or maybe Gaiman himself. I don't know. I think we're, we're still trying to make that happen here for the podcast. Well, we've, we've got one more scene and then we're actually done with the, the Dallas house, at least till we do our wrap up episode, but we'll be done with looking at every panel. And here in, in this epilogue dream is sitting on his throne. He's, he's thinking, and then he stands and he descends to his gallery and he eyes the wall of his family's sigils. He selects the heart that represents desire and he calls her and tells her that he's coming through. And so now we are back in the threshold of desire where uh, this story arc uh, began, if we're, we're not, uh, not not counting tales in the sand anyway. And, and Dream is here because he has reasoned out that this whole business with Unity and Rose and who is really the vortex, all of this was the handiwork of desire. And of course, right, this harkens back to that very first uh, scene of this story arc, the, the passing of of the vortex from one person to another is totally unprecedented, at least if it's done along genetic lines, as has happened here, uh, though the grammar of this might be a little bit difficult for us to use for our metaphysical investigations, uh, but that's actually probably good. That's part of what makes this fun to do. But in either case, desire, it turns out, was actually Rose's grandfather. It was Desire who raped Unity Kincaid while she was in a coma in the very first issue of The Sandman. I will say Desire doesn't deny this, but she also doesn't admit to the purpose of it. The Dream does indicate that if he had killed Rose, he would have been taking the life of uh, what he calls one of our blood. And he indicates as well that that would entail something bad, right? Pretty nonspecific, but something definitely bad. And understandably, Dream is pretty angry about this and he lets Desire know about it. He pulls back Desire's head like like by the, the hair. He threatens violence if Desire does something like this again. All of this also comes with a bit of speechifying as well. This speech here also full of uh, metaphysical goodness, I guess we'll call it. And the first thing that Dream says is that the Endless are not the masters of the living, but their servants. So this is actually calling back to some of the language we were talking about at the the, the top of the show. Or he says that the Endless exist because the living know deep in their hearts that they must exist. When the last living thing has left the universe, the endless will have completed their task. It also says that the endless do not manipulate the the living. Uh, They do not manipulate the, the people of the universe, right? It's really the other way around. And then he goes on to say that the endless are the toys or the dolls of the living. So a lot of fodder here for thinking about a lot of these metaphysical questions, but also the images and the themes of this uh, of this whole story arc. We'll get to all of that next month. But then Dream is gone. He, he leaves Desire to roam the corridors of the threshold and, and think about what he's just said. And Desire just doesn't believe him. Uh, certainly Desire is no doll, no toy, right? Humans twist and bend as Desire requires it. And Desire just thinks that it, it got under Dream's skin this time and is pleased with itself. And that's it. That's where this issue ends. That's the end of the issue. That's the end of the Dolls House storyline. And we close just as we began with an image of the colossal threshold of desire. And I am really looking forward to unpacking what Dream meant here, uh, though I think we, we may as well just save that actually for talking about dolls and dollhouses as a motif uh, next month. But there's going to be a lot to say about all of this. Um, and we've got Dream threatening desire here very clearly there's a panel where he is pulling abruptly with action lines kind of desires head back and as if you know there's not a knife in hand but that's you know what you would expect to see is that or preparing it for an axe blade or something so um i mean this is a very ominous image of dream being very serious about um his level of frustration with uh, his sibling here. 
Right. This is certainly a very different relationship than we see him have with his other sibling, uh, an issue, of course, that we talked about as part of Preludes and Nocturnes, but that is also included in this volume here, The the Doll's House. So it's clear that the, the relationships, the family relationships, the sibling relationships here among the endless are not the same. There's no sort of standard model here that he has this real closeness with death, but this potentially violent, potentially murderous animosity with desire that that seems to also run both ways, right? I mean, we've seen desire, also despair, plotting exactly this. We saw that at the beginning of the of the story arc. And so there's a real, maybe almost hatred between them. I, I have to ask you, Glenn. So we've seen Desire's throne room before with the giant picture probably of Desire itself on a bunch of TVs and kind of, you know, visceral parts of hearts and flames and, you know, or not flames, but bits. But here, when Dream comes through from his very kind of gothic architecture, cathedral style um, throne room, he visits Desire. I don't know whether this is Desire's throne room or something else, but, you know, playfully, she's dressed in a cat costume and there's maybe, I don't know if it's a snow leopard print pillows and it's, (laughs) you know, kind of, you know, I don't know if it's a bunch of cashmere that, you know, Desire is laying on or something else, but it's. Do you think that Desire intentionally put this outfit on and set the venue just to make fun of Dream? Or do you think that this is just sometimes the way that Desire just is? Yeah, look, this just struck me as Catwoman cosplay here. Because Desire is even acting a little bit like Catwoman, or at least the relationship that, that Catwoman and Batman can have this sort of uh, kind of a real sort of tension between them that has awesome passion, but then also has this, this real animosity and and has the capacity for violence as well. Uh, I mean, it's not actually a Catwoman costume, but that's what I was thinking the whole time. But yeah, the question is, is desire just sitting around in a cat costume from time to time? I think the answer might be yes, but I also think that, you know, as you're suggesting that this might point to something that desire has done specifically for dream right to to just not just show dream that she doesn't take him seriously and dream does seem to be a pretty serious dude and so if you want to get under his skin not taking him seriously not allowing him to set the mood set the tone of the interaction would definitely be a way to do that i think the cat costume particularly kind of the amateurishness of it does make it appear make desire appear more immature um, and that may be desire intentionally trying to poke fun at the rigidness of dream, but it may also be to kind of convey the difference here in the understanding level. Cause in some ways I think dream probably wins the scene where we're not sure that desire is convinced by his argument. Um, but, and we'll, we can talk about this more in the wrap up episode, but the opinion perspective we're given is that dream is probably more correct when he says what he says about his interpretation of who is in charge of whom rather than, and who might be the doll of whom versus desires take on things where desire maybe just 
doesn't know and doesn't have that level of understanding yet, I think is kind of what we're left with. Right. And something we do learn the the previous time that we've been in the threshold of desire is that there is something of a, of a gap. There are kind of two tiers of, or maybe more, but at least two tiers of the endless. There is the older siblings of which dream is one. There's dream, death, and destiny are the older siblings we're told there. And then everyone else is a, a younger sibling. There's some kind of gap there. And so, yeah, it may very well be that simply dream knows more about the universe, about cosmos, about creation, about what is up with this, where desire does not know as much about, about that may know almost nothing about it. And so even though they're both endless, they're in the same family, they do seem to have uh, some, some, something different in their nature, uh, even just from the start. I've seen some discussion online uh, about the differences in how Dream's gallery um, for his siblings appears in this issue compared to when we've seen the the gallery other times. Um, A number of people have noticed that usually it's in relative descending age – Relationally, as you mentioned, there's there's death and then destiny and then dream and then some other sibling and then desire and then um, despair. And then uh, we do get a name for delirium. I don't remember if delirium has been mentioned until this issue. And when we see back in the second issue of this collection, in Desire's Gallery at least, we see them in kind of that age order but there is a smiling face of desire itself in desire slot instead of the glass heart that dream seems to have. Um, I don't know if that's a function Glenn of in desire's own gallery. Desire really wants to think of itself as a smile, having a good time or, and if it's that the glass heart is just how dream views desire or if it that's how desire is conveyed in dreams realm in in total. I don't know if you have particular thoughts on that difference between the glass heart in dreams versus the smile, or if it's just supposed to be like a mirror um, almost um, in desires gallery room. I guess I would have just assumed that the sigils take their form based on the the person that they're meant to represent the person that they're really kind of an avatar for or standing in for in 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 some way anyway uh and so maybe they can change right maybe they don't have to be permanent maybe they can change that might actually be something that we see happen in the in the story and so yeah maybe sometimes desire is a heart maybe sometimes desire is its own face maybe it's sometimes other things uh that that maybe indicates something of the kind of fickleness of of desire uh i wonder if we'll see that with any of the other members of the endless who we haven't met yet if those will change over time you know assuming that they they are tethered to the the person they represent and not set externally or chosen by the person whose home they're in as 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 you're you're wondering about but I i think that's a great question well, I think you've got a good point there, Glenn. It could be specifically desire because of her kind of chaotic nature, um, for lack of a better term. Particularly desire sigil is the one that might be even change more than the others might. It could be certainly that dreams sigil of his helm never, ever, 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 ever changes because he's dream um, versus everyone else's that might change somewhat. The other thing that um, a number of folks have noted is that in dreams gallery in this issue, we get 
death sigil right next to desire sigil. Um, and independent of which order you read that in, there should be quite a few spots between those. Some people think that it might be just that it was done quickly. I think it was probably a matter of how much space they had for the panel. Um, and so they decided to have it the um, ones that we've seen Dream interact with directly at this point. We've seen him spend a whole issue with his sister, Death, and, we, and then we've seen him interact a couple times now with Desire. Um, but it could be that just as, at least in the Dreaming, if not in all the places, that the sigils might change how they appear, it may also be that the sigils are in the order that someone most thinks of them. So it could be at this point, Dream is not thinking about the whole family. He is thinking just about desire, but also death is, you know, more close to the surface of his mind than otherwise. But that's the reason why desire is, is right at the front. Although it's not the first one in these orders, whether you're reading left to right or right to left, um, because there is some ones we don't know who's because it's only the edge of it um, to the other side of desire as well. Yeah, I think we have to put this in the same place that we did when you pointed out that uh, what Lucian says, the way that he responds to the Dream Vortex being a person just does not jive with uh, what Dream says in this issue. I think we just have to we have to look at the inconsistency here and the way that this is represented as just being a, a mistake uh, or, or or mistake might not be quite right, but just as something or at least not for, for this issue, for this concern, but just as something that the creators, Gaiman, and then the, the artists don't care about, right? That they're not trying to show a consistent way that these rooms look, but are trying to to make sure that we understand what we're looking at, especially if we're dealing with comics as a form of storytelling that is serialized. And the idea, of course, right, that Stan Lee lived by over at Marvel, that that every issue of a comic book might be someone's first comic book or might be someone's first issue of that story, that it needs to be clear to someone who's never read any Sandman before and has just picked this one up. It needs to be clear what's going on there. And so the visual language is in service of, of that would be my guess about why it's not consistent, but I love trying to hold things to task. I love trying to hold stories to task, uh, you know, to, to, to make them be consistent, to make them have some continuity in some way. It's always a lot of fun to do. All right, so um, we've got quite a cover here. There is some information in Dave McKeon's uh, Dust Covers book about uh, how he made this particular piece of art and who exactly is uh, in the photograph. But let's leave that for after we've discussed what it is, because if you are not aware, then I don't want to um, <laughs> cause any uh, reaction, because I don't know that it, despite how he tries to make it, it he clearly is not trying to make it necessarily a photo of the person it was a photo of. It's just the material he's the fodder he's using to make the art. But here we have, um, uh, what appears to be dream sitting on a, a leather couch. Uh, I have a couch that looks similar to that. Um, we have a bunch of frames, both high and low. Um, it could be that there's flames engulfing the sides of a wall. It's not entirely clear. And then we have, kind of some gothic architecture that's reminiscent of less the 
throne room we see for Dream in this issue is when we saw it earlier in the series. So is this just Glenn Dream sitting and thinking after all is done? Is this basically him before he's about to or right after he's returned from uh, interacting with Desire? Yeah, this is a great question. I, I want to say that uh, looking at this this Gothic church, this Gothic cathedral in the background, that's actually what I want to know about, not the, the person. I'm much more concerned, much more interested <laughs> in uh, whether uh, McKeon or, or Klinger maybe have something to say about what church is that, which church is that. I'd love to love to go there. But, but to get to your question about what is it that we're seeing here, what is it that's being depicted? Is this Dream's throne room? I think probably it is supposed to be Dream's throne room, even though, you know, as you point out, it doesn't look exactly like the way that it's depicted inside. Of course, that's kind of the whole point of the, the Dave McKean covers. The the fact that it's on fire, and I actually think it looks a little bit like the couch is on fire in some way, uh, suggests that this is Dream. That suggests that Dream's domain is in chaos, that it's on fire, that, that the Dreaming is burning. I mean, certainly that's a nice metaphor for the vortex, right? The Dreaming really is in danger in this issue. And there seems to be maybe more going on here, right? If we think about Desire trying to lay some kind of trap for Dream, right? That's a kind of danger that Dream is is in as as well. But yeah, I think it's all meant to kind of signal a kind of danger, a kind of your house is burning and you might want to do something about that. That was definitely my sense of it. Uh, is that is that what you think is going on? I do. Um, and the other thing that struck me when I looked at it after we, as we've been discussing things is if that is supposed to be Dream's throne room also in the back, it's, it's small and it almost appears like it's the dollhouse, his throne, his... His magnificent palace is the throne room, and he is not the one who's manipulating the dollhouse. Rather, he is in the dollhouse that is manipulated by external forces, which is in contrast to all of the times throughout, even in this issue, uh, where we didn't call it out quite so much. But Rose still has that dollhouse that looks somewhat reminiscent of um, the Burgess Manor from the first issue of Sandman. But we've seen throughout and we've seen, you know, this unity had this dollhouse um, throughout um, and Dream sometimes was hanging out in the window of it um, like he was Beetlejuice. <laughs> sometimes he was, um, you know, uh, but here it very much feels like this is the Dream playset, right? There's the Dream, the Dream kind of, you know, pink palace playset. It would be with this particular kind of gothic church architecture facade, uh, either inside or outside, or hopefully both, um, with, you know, somewhat transparent uh, light being able to pass through that stained glass would be wonderful, I think. So I want to talk about what Dream looks like here, because I, I am dying to know who this is actually a photograph of that McKean has worked with. But when I'm looking at this, I mean, this looks like a mashup of, of, of several famous people, but the first two people that really come to mind here are Lou Reed and Iggy Pop, who you just said Rose has been listening to, right? So I do wonder if actually something like that's going on. Though though part of what's cluing me, part of what's making me think of Iggy Pop is the 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 bare chest here. It's something Iggy Pop was famous for uh, performing without a shirt on and then doing weird things with peanut butter that, that no one should really do with peanut butter. It's definitely not <laughs> the instructions on the, uh, the jar of peanut butter. But this chest looks a lot more like Ricardo Montalban as Khan. I will say, but I don't think he's supposed to be any of them either. So, so who is this actually? I just have to say, Glad, I now want to go check to see if there are instructions on the peanut butter <laughs> container. <laughs> All right. 
Um, in the the dust covers by Dave McKeon, um, I'm just going to go ahead and read because it's quite a bit. Oftentimes we don't have much detail on how he puts these together. And uh, you and I will not be completely satisfied in what we learn, but we'll be... Uh, very happy, I think, with what we do learn. It is a collage of photography, so we don't know where all the pieces come from. Unfortunately, he doesn't mention um, uh, the church, so we don't know where that image is from um, or to what extent part of it's a photo versus that he's done something out of, you know, chicken wire and paper mache and um, balsa wood. But, um, quote, since many people seem to like the cover for number 16, but had trouble deciding what they were looking at, a painting, a photograph. I started saying that I'd shot a roll of 24, 35 millimeter black and white photos as reference for the cover. And when they were developed, the negative numbered 25 had this image on it. I printed it up and used it, deciding not to think too deeply about how it got there. Okay. So that's a fun story. Uh, but then he says, the truth is it's a photo of Neil sitting in my living room. Oddly enough, the first explanation actually sounds more plausible. Um, and then Neil Gaiman uh, also has a note in this Dust Covers book about it where she says, quote, all I remember about this was how cold it was. I wanted DC to do this as a poster, but they never did, which is disappointing. If this was a poster, I think I definitely would buy it. Uh, I'd probably buy one for me, uh, one for you, um, and then you'd probably have two because you would have already bought one for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have this hanging up in my home for sure. This is a beautiful, beautiful cover. Yeah, of course it's Neil, right? It's always, I think Neil is always going to be the answer, right? When Whenever, it, whenever there's a question about who is this a picture of, I mean, it's kind of a fun gag. So let's move into talking about the the title here. We we talked last episode about how Lost Hearts is the title of a story by M.R. James that is invoked in that issue into the night. And I wondered if we were going to see that show up here. I don't actually see anything in this story that takes itself from or I don't see I don't actually see anything in this story that is taken from the M.R. James story Lost Hearts. Uh, but clearly, right, hearts are all over this issue. And and there is something of them being lost but not just lost of course but the broken and and damaged but you know the sense of loss here i think really seems to to me to the most to refer to unity kincaid here we were clearly she her heart has been lost um and she regains it and is able then to you know even before she regains it she takes charge of everything really frankly and saves the world um for an eon or so um by asserting that this is what's going on rose give me your heart which is really my heart and that i'm going to take control of it and break it myself um it's not for someone else to break it's not for dream to kill unity it's for unity to take the sacrifice herself which i think is lovely and a great end to unity's very tragic story i did think as we were talking about desires realm and throne room a little bit again and the idea of lost hearts um we see one giant heart at which is kind of ripped open or laid bare at least maybe the heart isn't ripped open but the flesh leading to the heart is ripped open for desires uh, palace but it's not like there's hearts in Desire's realm. Desire doesn't collect hearts. So they are just lost. They get damaged. They get broken. Sometimes they get restored. But they're just a commodity. They're extremely valuable, but also not something that anyone really can possess, right? 
Right. And that certainly goes back to the the image of Tales in the Sand, right? Where we've got a heart, just, you know, where we've got a gem shaped like a heart or or a glass shard shaped like a heart just in the the sand. I mean, that's something that's been lost. It's not not lost in the sense of maybe discarded, but lost to, to time, which actually is frankly Unity's story as well, that she's been lost to time, though she also lost her her purpose uh, to the the dream sickness. I mean, not that it was a purpose that anyone would have wanted. No one should want to be the dream vortex, right? We should want to live out our, our, a whole a whole regular life. But I like the idea of seeing these hearts as disposable to desire. I think that tells us a lot about who desire is. And presumably desire is going to be a force to be reckoned with as this whole saga continues. So did you have a favorite panel in this one, Glenn? There's a lot of images to take from. Yeah. So it's real tempting. And I think probably listeners would assume that I am going to pick the panel where Fiddler's Green shows up again. It does look like a great place to to visit. But actually, although it is, in fact, an image of Fiddler's Green, I'm much more taken by the, the image of Gilbert on top of page seven. This is the image where he's confronting Dream and saying that, that he's not going to let Rose die, that he's offering himself up uh, for in exchange. I mean, he hasn't actually said that yet, but this is him showing up. And Rose has screamed his, or, and Rose has shouted his name. She's run to him, like she's hugging him. She's sort of holding on to him. But what I really love about this is that uh, Gilbert and Dream are depicted here as as if they are facing off, as if this is a duel in a Western. Uh, and, and Gilbert even has drawn a weapon, right? It's his, his sword stick, I guess, is what it's supposed to be. But he's, but, but the hat that he's wearing even looks like a hat in a Western. He's in a pose, like he's about to draw a, a pistol, like this is a real standoff. And, and in fact, even really all that we see of Dream actually is his hand. We just get a close-up of his hand that is also in the same pose. It's his left hand, as if he's waiting to draw as well. And I I just really love the idea that these two are up on top of this hoodoo uh, about to actually have a duel and that Gilbert is in this really, really like romantic, heroic uh, pose, romantic with a with a big R kind of 19th century painting pose here as the hero, even while his face is totally in shadow, except for his eyes. Uh, really, maybe it's his glasses, uh, which are light. And this even calls back to the way people looked in the collectors. So it's a really interesting image, I think. No, I think it's great, Glenn. And I, I really liked it when we when I read it. I hadn't paid attention until just now, though, to the way Dream is holding his hand. And you're right. It looks like he's about ready to draw with his left hand and pull a six gun or, you know, reach across and, you know, unscabbard a blade of some kind. Um, and it's it's great. Um, and this is a great kind of heroic pose for Fiddler's Green slash Gilbert. Um, and I particularly like, you know, it's coming off of the panel before where you know, he is struggling to get to the top of this, this rock face, um, and using his cane to help leverage himself. And, you know, he's, he's not necessarily in the best of shape. And as someone who also is not in the best of shape, you know, we have that moment where we're like, just ignore how I looked getting to this point. Just take <laughs> me seriously as I am now here staring at you kind of moment, which, uh, which I, I think it's great. And I think also just kind of, the way, and partially it's because of the frame of G.K. Chesterton, but um, the relative size to, and we've been heard before that Rose is uh, small for her size, which is the reason why Funland thought that was she was maybe much younger than um, she was. But it makes him seem all the more 
on the one hand, kind of heroic and defensive. Um, but on the other hand, it also then, when we then panels later, see him become this giant green space, it works that we've set up with him being this giant kind of green figure and his face doesn't really necessarily matter for dream. It's more the rest of him, you know, in this sense, because dream knows this is Fiddler's green. There's not the Gilbert, um, and in the panel, in fact, it says Rose calls him Gilbert and Dream's response is just Fiddler's green. Right. And of course, he is actually wearing green and really has been wearing green almost the whole time that we've seen Gilbert in the story. Green, uh, green suit is not a thing that we see enough in our, our society anymore. We should, uh, I don't know, maybe we should bring that back or just, I don't know, we'll both just dress up as Gilbert all the time. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of yearning to, to do that anyway. Well, Brad, what was your favorite panel this issue? Uh, my favorite panel was uh, when we cut to um, Unity and um, right after the panel where um, she is surrounded in some kind of a light and she is falling asleep. Uh, Unity Kincaid finds it harder and harder to stay alive. Life is so Unity hears a voice, her own voice, and it whispers to her in the darkness. Not sure if that's Unity hearing her own voice, Unity hearing Death's voice, Unity hearing you know, someone else's voice, maybe Rose, the narrator. But what I love about this panel is the way her hair is framing her face and part of the hair is over her right eye. And she's just looking kind of very old and somewhat peaceful um, compared to how she appears later when um, she does die. But that is echoing the image that we have back when we pretty much first meet unity in issue one of Sandman in which the hair is, you know, similarly kind of slightly over her right eye and her hair is just kind of a big mess above her and her lips are kind of drawn together in the same way. She just has a lot more wrinkles in the original issue that in issue one, um, when we see unity, when she's a young woman, you know, there's no wrinkles to her face. Her face is completely smooth other than, um, you know, the normal curvature for cheeks and for where her eyes are and everything. Um, so this is, it echoes this as the bookends of her story in many ways, where we first met her, where she, in that panel, the wording on that one, I'm going to go ahead and read in the original panel um, in issue one, Unity Kincaid finds it harder and harder to stay awake. So again, it's similar, although it's to stay alive is now what it is. But um, And then she now sleeps for almost 20 hours a day. So that's the original panel up back in issue one. Um, and then this image we have now is that it's, she's finding it harder and harder to stay alive. So it's no longer after the sleepy sickness is over, the problem of staying awake. It's now just that you know, she has reached a point where um, she has been staying alive and it's just harder and harder to do so with where she's at in her life. Um, but then this is right before she has her final heroic moments of reclaiming agency, agency that was taken from her back in issue one. And in issue one, also we hear, you know, learn about her being um, sexually assaulted and then vaguely having a memory of having a child at some case. And at this point, at the end of her life, finally, we have her kind of in all her power in the dreaming, telling dream what's what, saying it's cute, you don't know what's going on, dream. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going to happen. Rose, do this. All right, now I'm going to, you know, break the heart myself. The vortex is dead. I've saved everything. Let's go. <laughs> like, and that's just, it's great. Um, but I really love, I love it when we have threads like this in comics where, 
and it helps when you've got very similar or the same creative team. But even when you don't, when you've got things that here, issue 16 takes basically the same panel with almost the same wording to something back in issue one and ties it together. So you can see that, um, return, but yet changed. I love the series of images as well. I always love when things are callbacks, but even in the first issue, this was a candidate for my favorite panel. I love the the zoom that is is employed here and and then just the simple the simple text. I mean, the the prose that goes on top of these images uh, in both issues is absolutely fantastic. No, and I, I should note um and you're right Glenn, it, it, there's actually a series of I'm cheating because it's <laughs> I'm pointing out the one image because it gives us the widest shot, but you're right. In both issues it's a triptych where it zooms in uh, over three panels and it's the same basically you know we'll say focal length for lack of a better but it's the same perspective of how close the art gets in each um the wording gets different but it's it's the repetition of that same kind of band of panels um from issue one to issue 16 so i was cheating because really i mean all three panels but (laughs) in fact i originally was going to pick the last panel and then i decided the detail of how her hair was falling over her face was just too good for me not to call out that one if i had to pick one well i'm not sure how you feel about your dnd alignment but mine is definitely not lawful so i am never going to hold you to the rules there uh and i'm not about to hold myself to them either i have i have violated them flagrantly on this show but i i love that you've picked this one because i i, I think that it also indicates to us that something we're going to want to talk about next month is looking at this story as is as if it's not dream story as if this isn't the sandman but as if these first two volumes have been Unity's story, right? What does this story look like from Unity's perspective? What does the story look like if we think that Unity is really the main character of this story? I think that will be a fun thing to, to look at in our wrap-up episode next month. But I think now that we have invoked the wrap-up episode a solid dozen or more times, uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And please visit the Clay Temple Forum or join us on our Reddit page and uh, let us know what you thought of Lost Hearts. And if you'd like to support the network and get access to dozens of bonus episodes as well, please find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. And remember to check out Atos, uh Glenn talking to himself, or is he talking to you all <laughs> along? Or is he talking to Rose? He's probably talking to everyone, but be sure to check that out both for works that specifically are called out in Neil Gaiman works and works that didn't make the cut because of space constraints. I think we're going to find that everything we've all been doing ever has actually been narrated by Rose. That's my that's my new understanding of what the universe <laughs> is. Well, next time, as we have said dozens of times already, we will be back to talk about the Doll's House story arc. Though maybe it's really better to say that we're going to be back to talk about the Doll's House volume. We'll talk about some themes and motifs. We're going to revisit some lingering questions, also some new questions that have been raised in this episode. We'll also pick some favorite and least favorite issues, favorite characters, and so on. We're also going to talk about the first two volumes, Preludes and Nocturnes and The Doll's House, in their historical and creative context. We're going to look at what Gaiman has said about them. Should be a pretty big episode, should be a fun episode as well. And so, until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>